Welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. I'm here to welcome you into the world of orgasmic living by hosting experts to discuss orgasmic topics such as nutrition, spirituality, personal development, sexuality, and much more. Here, we will offer lifestyle lessons that can help you lead a fulfilling, joyous, and orgasmic lifestyle. I'm your guide, Venus O'Hara. Welcome to the 33rd episode of the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. In this new moon episode, I'll be discussing dating and relationships. We'll be speaking to Dr. Cheryl Fraser, a relationship expert and author of Budder's Bedroom. Then I'll be discussing the book I'm reading now, which is Make Money While You Sleep by Lucy Griffiths. And finally, we'll be experiencing a guided meditation with affirmations for dating. But first, let's talk about my own experience or lack of experience with dating apps. I would really love to know what your favorite dating app is. I must confess that I've never ever used a dating app. In fact, I've always been kind of turned off by them. When they first became available, I was quite popular in Spanish media. I was also working on Catalonia Radio here in Barcelona. And I used to get recognized out and about. And when I saw that on these dating apps, such as Tinder and etc., that on the profile you could see how far away um, someone was and you had to use a Facebook profile, I think, as well, to set up a profile, as far as I know. That really turned me off. I thought, I don't really want people who recognize me to know how far away from them I happen to be at any given moment. So I just thought, nah, definitely not. I did have done website dating, though, several times in my life. And I have had some good, bad and painful experiences with those. And I must confess that more recently, I have been tempted to actually indulge in dating apps for the the first time ever. And that's because what we we will hear in our interview with Dr. Cheryl Fraser, she told me something incredibly um, inspirational about online apps, which is kind of making me start to think differently about it. And also I was talking about this topic with a friend of mine who is single and dating. And she said, there's an article waiting to be written here. So I thought perhaps it could be interesting for my line of work as a sexual wellness content creator to actually try a dating app for the first time and document it. It could be a really fun YouTube video. And then by the time I publish the video, my profile will be deleted. Yes, that's what I was thinking about it. But it made me think about all the times in my life when I actually have um, dated in the past. And I remember when I was working in um, export sales many moons ago, before I was a sexual wellness content creator and had a normal life, I used to find it still quite difficult to meet people um, 
um, potential lovers at that time. And also this is before I'd actually started using sex toys. So sometimes I wasn't making the best decisions because I was horny and just wanting to connect with someone. Um, but I remember there was a website in Barcelona called Locuo. I have no idea if it exists still. It was kind of like a Spanish equivalent of Craigslist. There's lots of adverts of people buying and selling things. And there was also an erotic component to this website. And this is where you would find very, how would I say, some joke um, lonely hearts ads, let's say, let's call them that. And um, some, there was no need to actually um, publish a profile picture. So it was all kind of a bit crazy. And some of it was kind of like man looking for woman, woman looking for man. And then there was a part that was called solo eroticos, like just erotic. And that was where you would find the kind of <laughs> the worst ads ever. And I remember once actually as a joke, it was on, on Mondays when I was at work, I would publish these kind of joke, let's say, adverts. One of them had a title of Only for Married Men. It was hilarious. I said that I was a French lingerie model, that I was 26, and that I was really sick of meeting men who wanted to leave their wives for me. I wanted a man who just, who was never going to leave his wife for me and who wanted no strings attached sex in hotel rooms. <laughs> and it was unbelievable because I left an, a fake email and I got about 200 messages in a day. It was crazy. And some of the messages were even giving me their mobile phones and saying, don't worry, darling, I won't leave my wife for you. <laughs> it was really, really, really crazy. And and more recently, I've been more, I've kind of started to shift my perspective on dating apps because I have, have some friends who are using a lot of dating apps. And I think the the current market, let's say, is, gone, is, is a bit more... Um, it's become more evolved than just Tinder. There's a lot more things on offer and lots of niche dating sites as well. I've done some promotional work with a website or with a dating app called Vegly, which is vegan dating. And that has been quite tempting for me as well, because to connect on an issue such as veganism, which is so dear to my heart, that kind of gives you something to talk about that's not, um, that doesn't, doesn't seem like an emotional interview. Like, so why are you single? Where was the last relationship? But that type of situation that I've been in, in um, on first dates just seems kind of painful. Um, but so connecting as a with with an, uh, an issue like on, on an issue such as veganism seems a little less painful. But the problem is, I know all the vegan, vegans in Barcelona. So I was with a friend last night actually who just signed up to this ad, this um, app, Vegly V E double G L Y. We were going through all of the um, women from let's say thirty to forty, and we knew half of them. So I just don't think I want to have my dating desires to be so public. Let's say. But even so, I think that's always going to be that risk, so to speak, if on, on any dating app. But it's, um, I guess, um, in the vegan world in Barcelona, it's quite a small world. So everyone knows each other. And that, that really does um, turn me off. But one app that does uh, appeal to me is one called Hinge. And that app is quite interesting in the sense that the profiles are a little bit deeper than, than just a profile picture, a sentence and your age. There are some audios as well, and it just seems to be a little more, I don't know, higher quality, if you can say that. But I have a friend who's had lots of success on that app, and it's just become available 
in Spain recently. Well, it was available, um, I think, if you had a UK number, but I think now it's becoming, it's growing quite a lot locally and only the international um, community is actually using it for now. So it could be, that might be the one that I'm going to use for my experimentations. But if you have any uh, feedback on dating apps and which ones you recommend or not, I would really love to hear from you. Um, my email is venus at venusohara.org. So any tips would be highly appreciated. I know a lot of people do speak highly of Bumble as well. And um, that, that's a, um, a dating app where women make the first move. So I think a lot of men that I know kind of like having that pressure taken away, you know, not to have, because for them, from my single friends, they always tell me that it's a numbers game, which they just go through all of these profiles and just say, yes, 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 yes. Because it's not very often that they're getting any positive feedback in return. Whereas my experience as a female on a dating website was just create the profile and wait. You're just going to automatically get all of these messages in your inbox without having to do very much at all. I do kind of like the idea of maybe I am, I do consider myself to be, you know, a feminist, independent woman and all of those things. But I do, I do think, um, I do like, um, I do like the man to make the first move. And I think if a man wants something that they will, will make the effort and maybe that sounds really bad. And what do you think about that? I think it's, um, I think I would like to kind of stay in my feminine energy and just um, be be a bit more passive in that process and then, and then decide and just, um, um, I think I would like a man to make a first move. And also it's a, a question of shyness as well. I think it's, um, I remember when I was having my lesbian era, which is very short, a short-lived era of, of a couple of years. Um, I remember going out to d- dating or to actually lesbian clubs and it was very unclear who was supposed to make the first move. And I, I just knew it wasn't going to be me. So sometimes you would end up just not, nothing would happen because people were not maybe used to approaching people. And it just felt very, I don't know, it just felt very uncomfortable for me. And for me now, it doesn't really feel very comfortable, the idea of making the first move. But one of my friends who uses Bumble, um, who likes the app a lot, um, to overcome that, she just sends emojis and then waits for the guy to actually start sending messages with actual words in them, which I thought was an interesting approach as well. So I still haven't actually made the time to um, create a dating app, but maybe by the next episode I will have and I can report back. And I'm kind of, um, yeah, excited about this because I haven't been on a date. Well, I have been on a couple of dates with people I've known in person, which is kind of easier because you do have a lot to talk about then. Um, But I haven't been on a kind of blind date for a very, very, very long time. And I vowed never again. But at the same time, I'm thinking that, you know, in life, you cannot say no to certain things. Like, I think you can't just rely on, you know, being in the right place at the right time, because many people are using dating apps now and they, you're, they're meeting people that they would, they would never have met if they were just waiting for being in the, the right place at the right time. And for example, another friend of mine had a date with a guy who's in Barcelona on business and they would probably would never have met if it hadn't been for a dating app. So just, I think in life you need to be open to all different possibilities and not say no to a certain thing because then it's like saying to the universe no I don't want this but I think it's uh, good to have an open mind at least but um, 
you must always be selective. So yeah, a little bit nervous about this, but maybe by our next episode, I will have my my um, my profile up and running for the very first time. And it's kind of exciting and scary. But in life, I think you have to do something that scares you every day. Did you know that you can use your sexual energy to manifest the life of your dreams? It's called sex magic. I've been practicing sex magic for almost five years and it's changed my life. If you're interested in one-to-one magic mentoring with me, visit my website, venusohara.org to find out more. Now it's time for this episode's interview. We'll be speaking to Dr. Cheryl Fraser, author of Buddha's Bedroom. So welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast, Dr. Cheryl Fraser. It's a real pleasure to have you here. For those who don't are not familiar with your work, can you, would you like to tell us what you do? Sure. I sometimes quip that uh, if a Buddhist nun and a sex therapist had a baby, I'd be the progeny. <laughs> now, first of all, that would be very naughty of the Buddhist nun. But uh, in terms of my uh, academic background, I'm a clinical psychologist and a sex therapist, but I've also been on a lifelong search. It sounds like as you have been, uh-huh. <laughs> meaning of you know being abundantly thriving in our life, which of course is an impossible goal if we want it all the time. So that led me uh, to a very deep study of Buddhism. I've done multiple three and four month deep retreats in India, Tibet, Canada, the US. And uh, I attempt in my own imperfect way to bring them together to some degree. So to look at, particularly I focus on couples, generally in longer term relationships. And by that, I mean simply more than about two years together. And how can we revive passion, both in our sexual life, but in our heart life? I think what you would so beautifully call an orgasmic lifestyle, being alive, being engaged. Um, And I do that through various mediums like you do. Uh, I put a podcast in a book. And my favorite way to work with people is I do a three-month immersion online couples program where I teach live every week. And it's absolutely awe-inspiring over and over to see couples in pain, choose to see whether they can reboot, reignite, and reinvigorate uh, uh, this dreadfully ridiculous thing we try to do, which is long-term love. (laughs) Okay. So I've been reading your book, Buddha's Bedroom. Yeah, it's really uh, it's really interesting for me because it's something that, that I saw in one of your videos and in this book that really inspired me personally or something that triggered me is um, the fact that you talked about having this shower for two, but you were doing couples therapy. And, and I feel like that sometimes in my life that I am, um, you know, talking about these different couples toys because I'm, I'm mainly a sex toy reviewer. That's the main part of my job. And I also think about couples' ways to use toys, but I'm mostly celibate. I've been single for just over a year. So I find it incredibly frustrating sometimes. <laughs> it's, it's, so even to read a book like yours, which is, it makes me feel even more kind of single or, or, or confirming my desire to have a spiritually complete and fulfilling relationship. So how, how did you reconcile that in your own life? Because I think that's something you've, you've lived with. 
You know, I really like that you've asked that question because of course, both of us being in the field we're in, I think there's a tremendous amount of projection that we've got mm. the perfect relationship. Well, let's smash that all together. I'm in a, I'm in a terrific relationship now, but it's hella far from perfect mm -hmm. and we've got to do all the things. So what uh, you're referring to there is a period for almost 10 years in for most of my 40s where I was single, uh, mostly by choice. And I made a, a very conscious decision to not seek uh, a, a love partner, a sexual partner for a lot of that time. And to be perfectly frank, I talk about it in the very introduction to the book there. It was that when I was in relationship, my mind states were crazy. You know, there was a lot more clinging, a lot more turbulent emotion, you know, frustration, desire, wanting my partner to make me happily ever after. Um, I did air quotes if you're not watching this on video. Um, and I was a lot calmer and more content and more deeply happy for some of those years where I chose to not pursue romantic relationship. And just to, to, to clear that up for people, I very deeply, if not desperately, wanted romantic relationship my whole life until then, and was, you know, in serial monogamy relationships. And when one would end, I would grieve massively for about a year and just be pretty shattered and then seek a new one. So it was very interesting to be with myself the way you're being right now, uh, partly by choice, also by circumstance. Let's face it, we want someone fairly um, fabulous, not perfect, mm -hmm. to jump into the journey of spirituality, sexuality, and emotional connection with. Um, and I did reconcile it, damn it, until I was asked to write an article. I write columns as well, as you probably do, for a magazine. And this was about eight, nine years ago an editor asked me to write an article on online dating. And I've been out of the online dating scene myself for about five years. So I was out of date on what the kind of funky new good apps and good, you know, meet and greet dating sites were. Uh, I'll shorten the story. Because of that, I needed to do some research on some of the dating apps I wasn't familiar with. And so I jumped on, I wanted to do a quick search on, uh, it, it, was, it was an article more geared towards the heterosexual population. Although I, of course, like you work with anyone, and so I looked for men in my age group, plus or minus five years old, to get a sense of the different dating sites, kind of what quality of mates were on there. Was it a hookup site? Was it more of a long-term love site? And there was one I went on and it said, you know, you can't search unless you join for free. So I'm like, whatever, I'm doing research. Threw up a single photo, quickly wrote a profile, but like you, I'm a writer. So it was a pretty, I guess, fun profile. Did a quick search, thought, okay, this is the quality. This is the tone of this site. I now can refer to it in my article, went to bed, got up to cancel my free subscription. And there were six emails from six different guys. And I was almost slightly jaded at that point, which is not something I love to admit. Jaded isn't usually my brand. But when I read these uh, inquiries, I thought, crikey, I would go on a date with four of these six guys. And then it's like the little devil angel voices came up and said, well, if nothing else, you'll get some good research. And the other boy said, what if, what if, would it kill you to go on some dates on the doubt voice? Infinitesimally small chance you'll meet someone special. And now I'm married to him. That's amazing. So that's how it happens. Because <laughs> I've, I've been a, 
in doubt, no, I haven't, haven't actually been on any of these apps. I've been on, you know, dating websites years ago because I used to be quite well known locally and, and spotted in the street and stuff because I used to work on local radio. And I was thinking having an app where people know how far away I am from them and the recognizable face, I just didn't, didn't sit comfortably with me. But I've been uh, kind of toying with the idea. And, and one of my friends said to me yesterday, there's an article waiting to be written. <laughs>
in a lot of my work with the public, um, I do something what my friends call stealth dharma, dharma again meaning the teachings of, of Buddhist mind work, meditation, etc. Uh, I don't talk about it super overtly, but it's in there. For example, if you have an argument with your sweetheart, we tend to have a story in our head. You know, he or she's being impossible. They're so thoughtless. They're not, you know, considering my needs. And we believe this story. Now, it's simply a story. And it's a story we fabricate based on the actual data. The data might be they didn't give us a birthday present we liked. So that's actually what happened. But we can do anything we want with the data. We can create any story. We can rewrite the story. And if the story I default to is you don't care about me, you're not romantic, you take me for granted, you ruined my birthday, we believe it's true, but it's not. We can call that cognitive behavioral therapy if you like. Uh, really, it goes as far back as the Buddha and before. What if we rewrite the story? So I often teach my couples, change your mind, not your mate. Of course, I'm not mm -hmm. talking about abuse or intolerable situations. I'm talking about the regular disappointments and hurts. What if I reinterpret the data, which is my sweetheart didn't give me a birthday gift that dazzled me, to the following? Well, that's my sweetie. He's not so good at birthday gifts. I love him mm -hmm. or her. You know, so that, for example, is a way of inserting ways of working with our mind into the general couples and sex therapy work. Tantric sexuality, when, we, when we're making love, for example, but with Buddhist bedroom, I really came out of the closet, I suppose, as bi, you know, mm -hmm. both a sex therapist and a Buddhist. And I used this beautiful teaching um, of how we work with our mind, how we work with our emotions. Uh, for example, if you've made love to the same person for, for 34 years, you may be quite bored with your sex life, rarely have sex and find it very predictable. That's not the, your body or their body or your relationship. It's the mind. If you got hit on the head today and had absolutely no harm to you, except you forgot about all your previous sexual encounters with your partner, the sexual encounter you had today would be wildly exciting mm -hmm. and passionate because it would feel new. So what can we do with our mind to create a sense of novelty in something that's very familiar? You know, Definitely. I often say, um, I'm going to make a wild assumption that you might like chocolate. Most of us do. And we rarely, you know, let's say you had an absolutely gorgeous Belgian truffle in front of you, just a sliver of it. And we placed it on our tongue and we let it melt and it coats our tongue. And there's the beautiful sensory silkiness. I very much doubt either of you after our delightful chocolate encounter would say, oh yeah, but I've had a thousand chocolates before. Oh no, definitely not. Definitely we not. don't. Mm -hmm. And yet we'll say that about kissing our sweetheart. I'm bored of this. I've done it so many times. It's not new. So what makes the chocolate different than the kiss is the quality of mind we're bringing to this present moment, enjoying our sliver of truffle. So imagine if we can bring that showing up with presence, which means our senses are more alive, a touch will be more intense, the taste of that chocolate will be more intense than if you chuck it in your mouth when you're on the tube and reading a book at the same time. So really, Buddha's bedroom is um, a, a way of bringing those sorts of teachings into very clear couples and sex therapy techniques. I'm, I'm assuming that when you are working with couples, they are often couples that are having some kind of crisis or kind of like they are. Mm -hmm. um, did, that, did that subconsciously influence you to be single for a while when you see? Because I think sometimes when we, for me, I, I've seen that a lot of examples around me are not they don't inspire or aspire me they don't they don't really 
So, so having not not good references sometimes can be a, a reason why um, people choose yeah, a simple really, life. You know, it's a really interesting question, and I would say not so much for me. I have almost a almost the opposite reaction to couples. I've had the absolute pleasure to work with either when I used to do private therapy work with couples in my office, and now in the, in I work with people exclusively in the three month online program, a group program where I, I coach them also every week live as well as having a curriculum and whatnot, I have the opposite. What I see gives me hope. Mm -hmm. I see people in really dire straits, multiple affairs, bottom of the barrel, devastation, or maybe having lost a child, you know, one of the most horrifying things anyone could go through. And not that every single person, neither you or I are naive, not like every single couple makes their way through the darkness and into the light. But I have an incredible privilege to work with couples who by the very act of choosing to work with me or another skilled person are are making some sort of claim that we want more, we want better. Maybe we don't believe we can do it, but we want to try. So I actually get hope about love. I get hope about, um, there's a couple who took my program last year who they've been, they were in their early seventies and they'd uh, been together forever. And he'd been in the military as a high-level pilot, kind of a maverick, Top Gun kind of thing, that movie that's out right now. And he'd had multiple affairs. They'd been through just everything. And they hadn't had sex, made love in over 25 years. They'd stopped having sex in their 40s. Lots of fighting, lots of affairs, lots of betrayal, lots of pain. To my absolute humility, they found me, joined the program, and now have a sexual life together. After 25 years of no sex. So how could I not believe in the possibility of redemption or the possibility of, of the courage and the dignity of two people attempting this nigh impossible thing of long-term love, of falling back in love? So I have said a bit of the opposite, Venus. During the years where I was you know, single by choice, I saw, wow, here's couples having what I would maybe like again. Mm, cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. They inspire me. That's amazing. So going back to your book, would you like to tell us what the passion tri- triangle is? <laughs> I would very much like to. So the passion triangle is the, is this sort of simple model I use with all the work I do to help couples. Um, they can do a sort of a, a quick self-assessment as they listen to our conversation today. And if they want to actually do a quiz, I can give you a link to a 10-minute quiz where they can find out where they're strong and weak on what I call the three keys to passion. The three, um, say, aspects of a healthy and ideally exceptional relationship and exceptional relationships are extraordinarily rare that makes me deeply sad but if you are committed to wanting to have a really great relationship you need to build your strengths in these three areas i call them intimacy thrill and sensuality now i use the word intimacy differently some people in our field and and in the vernacular use the word intimacy as a euphemism for sex right are we going to be intimate tonight that's a great way to use the word but the way i use it here is different i'm talking about emotional psychological intimacy so the intimacy part of your relationship is really the glue that you what you need to have a sustainable long-term relationship and that's communication conflict resolution 
What do you do when you have ugly repeating arguments? Learning some really good skills on timeouting the destructive arguments. Ways to come together and have productive, albeit painful and emotional, conversations about the really tough stuff that is happening instead of ignoring it, sweeping it under the rug where it grows into a monster. It's also the sweetness of, of what some people call relationship friendship where you, you really, really bloody like your partner. And they're the first person you want to call when you get good news. And they're the first person you want to call when you've got a flat tire. And you, you really feel they've got your back. And that they won't you know uh, throw you to the wolves if you're out in public and someone's criticizing you. Even if they don't agree with your point of view, they'll stand up by you. All these things that we consider a great relationship to have and that most of us really need some tuning up on. And none of us get trained in conflict resolution. None of us learn how to handle a relationship argument. We kind of mimic whatever we saw as, as kids and uh, you know, let's not go there. So that's really key. Really what your typical couples therapist would mainly work on. Unfortunately, your, your typical couples therapist, as you well know, but uh, not all your listeners may yet, is not trained in sex. In mm -hmm. fact, it's an abysmal gap in the training of the majority of couples therapists. They're very good at the intimacy side. But uh, for example, you can get a PhD in clinical psychology, uh, which is what I have, which is sort of the top, top designation in, in North America. I've got 13 years of university and there was no curriculum that was required on sexuality. I mm -hmm. sought it out. I did a two year postdoc in San Francisco, hotbed of sex. Um, maybe after Amsterdam, I don't know, um, to train in sex. So that's intimacy. Thrill, this is the one we all relate to really easily when we think of falling in love. It's the excitement, it's the butterflies, it's that locked and loaded feeling where I can't stop thinking about you. I can't pay attention at work because I'm anticipating our third date. Flushes of arousal and sexual lust, you know, remembering that kiss and when your tongue touched mine and, you know, one gets wet or they get hard. Um, and also the, the almost obsessive thinking is biochemical. There's research to show that the uh, biochemistry we have when we're falling in love or lust or attraction with someone actually does mimic the brain chemistry of obsessive compulsive disorder. I read that so, yesterday. I was like, yeah, wow, I underlined it. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. Right? <laughs> we couldn't stop thinking about them. It was obsessive. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, but that you said that was about like a projection as well of our idea. Oh yeah. 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 Like thrill is mm. thrill is a dangerous thing to think it's real. And let me contextualize that. It's a very real feeling. You're stoned. Mm. You're stoned on your biochemistry. You're also stoned on your projection, which you wisely have brought up. Well, what does projection mean? Well, you know, if, if you and I were on a date, I'm like, she's everything. She's gorgeous. She's in my field. She lives in an exotic place. I'm going to assume you like dogs, so let's just go with that. She I, I actually dogs. hate dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, now it's over. The date's over because you've ruined my projection of you and my perfect man loves dogs, right? So, yeah, that, you know, oh, and then you tell your friends, oh, he, she's this, and he, she's that, and it's amazing. Well, you've known them for an hour and a half, right? And we're already in the three kids and the picket fence. So what I tell people is enjoy the hell out of falling in love. It's like a roller coaster, but it's going to pull into the station. And then you're going to have to see whether you're actually compatible for a regular relationship. But the passion triangle is meant for all of us, but particularly those of us in a committed relationship where the thrill is probably the, the, the side of the passion triangle that's really weak for most long-term couples. Like we love them. 
We don't really feel in love with them anymore. Like we like our sweetheart. We're great parents together. We love going camping, you know, on, on holidays. Um, we're good buddies. Occasionally we have some lovemaking that's okay or maybe pretty good. But, you know, I don't light up when he or she gets home. I don't run to the door and give them a passionate kiss the way I did when we were dating. And I don't bother to wear nice underwear. So thrill is really where, as a longer term couple, I work with couples to just bring some of that back in. Everything from date nights to surprising each other to if you're not organically a romantic person, literally programming it into your phone, you know, buy him flowers, uh, send her a sexy text so that it becomes a lovely habit to remember how special your partner is instead of waiting for a terrible, painful wake up call like an affair or your friend's spouse is suddenly killed in an accident and you wake up and adore your partner for a few days. You see, you, 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 you know, terrible events can create thrill. So to go back quickly, we've got three sides to the passion triangle. I've uh, explained intimacy, I've explained thrill. And the third side I call sensuality, a word I suspect given our similar philosophical views, you would really relate to Venus. I don't call it sexuality. Mm -hmm. I mean the entire spectrum of all things sensual from holding hands when you go for a walk to snuggling when you watch a movie to kissing goodnight or good morning. And through all touch, sensory experience, playing music and dancing when you're making your food, that's a sensory experience. Please all try it if you're not doing it. And then of course, the entire erotic and sexual spectrum, everything from simple sweet love making right through to tantric sex, multiple orgasms, kink, whatever one wants to explore. And uh, as you would likely know, but some of our listeners may need reminding, the research indicates that 30 to 40% of couples in a long-term relationship are sexless. Mm -hmm. And as you don't know, that's clinically defined as you make love six or fewer times a year. Now of that 30 to 40% of long-term couples, a good number of them haven't had sex in years. And one of the groups of people I love to assist, as you do in your work, is people who may be sexless, but still would like to see whether it's possible to bring some sexuality and sensuality back. And in that case, I don't start with, go have sex tonight. They're not ready. There's all sorts of hurt and pain in history. We start with eventually moving them to where they might, you know, have a shower together and soap each other up. Eventually, we might start with a clothed, deep hug once a day to even break that barrier. Uh, depending on the couple. So the three keys to passion, again, people can take a quiz if they want, if they want, it's kind of fun to do. You know, how am, how am I and my sweetheart doing these days on intimacy, communication, deep communication? Are we really only talking about the kids and the dog and the mortgage and, and whether we are eating enough green food? Or are we also talking about our hopes and dreams, who we are? Do I know what's going on for my partner at work? Do I know what they're excited about in their life and what they're worried about? If not, you've got some tuning up to do. And then secondly, thrill, how are we doing? You know, is it flop on the couch with Netflix and a bowl of popcorn every single night? Or do you say, look, we're really tired, but let's get up and go down to the corner cafe and have a glass of wine and a good conversation about something that's not about the house and the kids. And then sensuality, are we attending to our erotic life, our touch life? Are we making it sacred? Are we making it intentional? Do you ever kind of compare the assessment of the couples? Because I guess that people have different perspectives on how much, yes. how much intimacy yes. is enough. And 
you're quite right. Someone might say, you know, we're great in intimacy. We talk, I'm really close to my partner. And the other one might say, I feel super lonely. And he or she doesn't actually know my inner deepness. We only talk about trivial stuff. And certainly around thrill, one person might say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm still really excited when they get home. And the other one might say, meh, to quote my niece. Mm -hmm. um, and on sexuality, certainly there can be Usually people have a reasonable assessment of how they're doing sexually, but they often feel very different about it. So person A may say, well, we make love about twice a month and I'm really content with that and it's quite pleasurable. And person B might say, we make love about twice a month and I'm really frustrated and I really want more and I'd like to explore more and I'm very bored with our sex life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember I was working with a guy years ago who was probably mid-50s and he was really excited about his second son leaving to go to university so he'd have the empty nest to be able to explore with his wife and thought isn't that incredible you know to have that passion again after you know yeah. just looking forward to the kids leaving so yeah, they can yeah. have sex Ooh. all over the house we can make noise again yeah after 20 years it's really inspiring when you hear things like that so when you say um happiness is an inside job how does it apply when you are unhappy in a relationship does it have a solution i mean how where is the line um, there's a solution, but it's one very few people will study enough to, to become good at. So I'm always going to keep it real. Literally happiness comes from inside. And that's not just meant to be a, you know, a silly bumper sticker. Um, we'll go back to the example I made up earlier in our conversation of, you know, uh, your partner birthdays are very important to you. They're how you feel important. Maybe you grew up in a family where your birthday was ignored and you've really explained to your sweetie. You know, it really means a ton to me if you make a fuss. Um, it really makes me feel loved and special and safe. And your partner's not great at it. And they maybe try, but their trying isn't what you wanted. You know, the old joke, they give you a vacuum instead of a diamond bracelet or whatever. How sexist is that? To both sexes, I think completely unfair. But anyway, um, and I'm really, really hurt and upset and um, devastated by your lack of, um, you know, making a fuss on my birthday that filled me up. Again, I'm, I think I'm unhappy because you did or didn't do something. I think I'm unhappy because of the event. But like I explained briefly earlier, the data is your sweetheart either forgot your birthday or brought you something that didn't, didn't meet your needs. But the happy or unhappy is all up to you. And this is very advanced teaching. And I don't want anybody to feel guilty or embarrassed or shamed that your human experience, mine as well, often is I am unhappy because of you. That is our experience, but I'm suggesting people take it a mile further to say, what am I actually upset about? I'm upset because I'm interpreting this as you don't care about me. That's mine stuff. That's not your partner's stuff. I'm assuming for this example, of course, Venus, that your partner does care about you and they do love you and they in fact adore you. They're just crap at birthday. Uh, so that's the setup I'm giving. If they actually don't care, you've got bigger problems to tackle and maybe choose to separate at some point. But if my experience is you don't care about me and whatever, now I'm making my partner feel terrible. He or she's like, no matter what I do, it's not good enough. I can't make you happy. If I'm able to take care of the wounded kid inside me whose parents were crap at birthdays and say, this is my stuff. Hey, babe, thanks for trying. Next year, I might give you a script on what to do. Um, and I'm going to throw myself a great birthday tomorrow and invite you. You're happy. You're in love. Your partner isn't a villain because they're just not very good at birthdays. They're not very creative in that way. So I really work with people on both. 
What I mean is, let's say that was a couple I was working with. I would work in two ways. I would certainly work to help, you know, delinquent birthday spouse to, you know, Google up great ideas for birthdays. Ask me for ideas. Better yet, go to your spouse's friends and say, what do you think they'd like? Because they're often a wealth of resource. My friend's husband used to come to me and say, what does she want for Christmas? I say, give her this. He's like, okay, cool. Because I was going to give her that. I'm like, no, that would have been a fail, my friend. So I do work to actually solve the problem as much as I can and to train the, the delinquent birthday partner to be better at that, to take it on. But ultimately, if my happiness is dependent on my spouse doing the right thing, it's a very, very fragile happiness. Absolutely, because you can't control on something outside. Mm. And, you know, your spouse might get a migraine on your birthday and not be able to show up. So happiness being an inside job, yeah, it's a bit of a, a slogan, but it's a slogan with a profound meaning. And it's essentially the basis of all Buddhist uh, mind training and some other uh, both scientific, psychological and spiritual schools, which is you're responsible for, for the mind's reaction to whatever happens. Mm -hmm. So in the intimacy part of your book, you talk about loving speech. And how, and how can we apply, what is loving speech and how can we apply it to our relationships? Yeah, yeah, I really like that phrase. And that's based on, uh, the Buddha teaches eight kind of aspects of our life that we can work on to, to have less suffering, to be happier from the inside. And one of them is, is, is interestingly enough, our speech. It's one of the eight that the Buddha taught. Well, that's kind of interesting. You think it would all be about meditation and asceticism. No, it's like, be careful with your speech. And some of the training is be honest, be fair, choose the right time to speak. This is directly from the Buddha's mouth. He was a good couples therapist. It may be true, it may be fair, but it may be the wrong time to bring it up. You know, so to really be thoughtful. And I, I use the phrase kind speech. Uh, and I contrast it to the way, certainly in North America, and I think around the world now, um, we're, we're a culture of impatience and rudeness in our speech, and it's become very acceptable. You know, if you're at the grocery store, it's a great one item test. Everybody go to the grocery store today and spend five minutes watching couples and or families and listen to how they speak to each other. And we're going to hear people say, come on, hurry up, we've got to go. Or no, put that back. I didn't say you could. Or, oh, for God's sake, we don't need more steak. Did you not check the fridge? Like there's so much curtness, rudeness, impatience, um, and it's just become endemic and accepted. So it's a way to say, I sometimes say, the name of my program is called Become Passion. So I say to my couples, imagine I put a Become Passion nanny cam in your home and I could listen to the way you talk to each other when you're in a rush or you're frustrated or you're annoyed. Would you want me to share the footage? And there's like, oh, Right. And I say, but if you if your good friend was in the home, would you be OK? Me showing that footage, even if you were impatient or angry with them? And they said, yeah, I would speak much more kindly. Oops. It's just kind of uh, gone still there. Hello. Hello, it's just frozen. I'm not sure if you're still here. Let me just, hello. So hello again, Cheryl. So we're back after the the power cuts. <laughs> we were yes, on fire. Real life happens. Exactly. And you know, great couples handle it when things like that happen. Like, oh no, the power's out. This can't happen. That can't happen. Do we go into a big tizzy or do we say, 
as the Buddhists would say, well, that happened. That's reality now. It's not the reality we wanted, but we can either suffer and get upset and freak out, or we can be graceful and say, okay, gosh, that happened and we'll have to re-record another day. And here we are. Yeah, because also in this podcast, I don't actually edit out any any filler words. It's just all in, you know, so I think it's a good practice just to embrace authenticity. And I think it's nice for people to listening, listening to it as well to think you don't need to be perfect. We were talking about last time um, I, about couples in supermarkets you were talking about. And I'd yeah. written down couples in airports because I when I travel, I travel a lot alone for business and stuff. And when I see couples in airports, they're kind of sick of each other. You see all this bickering and tension. And that kind of makes me want to stay single sometimes. <laughs> it's true. And I mean, I ask people to go on sort of a anthropological um you know, outing to do just what we're talking about, you know, go to the supermarket. If you're at an airport, picking up your kids at, at, you know, after the school play, take a little look at couples. And one of the things you won't see is physical affection. You'll very, very rarely see a couple holding hands if they're not a new couple. You'll very rarely see them with their arm around each other. And I noticed this, you know, Venus, at times when I watch an, a, a big epic program like the Olympics, maybe, or something like that, where there's these, um, or even some of the, um, you know, uh, America's Got Talent or England's Got Talent, those shows, the parents are watching their kid and they're so thrilled for their child performing or the athlete. And yet there's almost no affection between the two of them. It's a very rare thing. The camera will cut to the parents of an athlete or a performer. And when that person does well, the parents will turn to each other and hug or kiss. In fact, there was a bit of a scandal here in, uh, in North America, you know, uh, in Canada, we're ice hockey loving people. And there was a, like the draft pick where they, you know, they picked the great players for that year. And it, uh, a young man was chosen for an NHL hockey team, the, the premier hockey team. And the um, whatever cam just cut to his parents. And usually I guess they'd be going, yay, we're happy for our son. Instead, they turned to each other and they shared a passionate kiss on camera. And it was a bit scandalous. It went viral. CNN, the American news station talked about it. And I thought, isn't that tragic? <laughs> that a couple who's been together 25 or 30 years can passionately kiss because they're sharing a moment of delight for their family and it makes the news, right? It shouldn't be newsworthy in my world. It should be typical. Here in Spain, I'm, I'm British, but I live in Spain. So there's a lot more physical affection in general. And you see couples who have definitely been together all their lives. They're not new couples, sometimes walking down the street hand in hand. And it's such a beautiful thing to see. Yeah, as Commonwealth folk need to take a page out of that more relaxed physicality, uh, because touch, as you would well know, it grounds us, it activates the parasympathetic nervous system. So it calms our blood pressure and our heart rate. It connects us in a way, <clears throat> literally in a nonverbal way that's very powerful. So anybody listening, take a page out of the book of that scandalous Canadian couple or of any regular Spanish couple and touch more and touch often. Definitely, touch is just so important. So what about the sensuality, which is a third part of the triangle? Um, let's talk about that for a bit before. I've, got, I've written down here conscious climax, but I think there's a lot to cover before we get to that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not really a beginner move, is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, so just to review for folks, I teach, uh, the way I choose to teach couples is based on a three-part, what I call the passion triangle, three parts to a great relationship. We talked in depth about what I call intimacy, which is communication, conflict resolution, trust, support, cheerleading each other, handling the tough stuff. 
then we were talking about thrill, which we've talked beautifully about just now with one aspect of thrill being, you know, still wanting to cuddle and touch and maybe share a passionate kiss when, you're, when your child gets their life dream come true in front of you. And then the third side, of course, of a romantic sexual relationship and the part that sets it apart from any other relationship in our life, if we're choosing monogamy, is the sensual, erotic touch uh, side of our relationship. I sometimes say, what is a great long-term relationship or a great long-term marriage? <clears throat> Excuse me. I sometimes say, what's a great long-term marriage? And really, it's a fantastic friendship plus nudity. Really, it's the communication, the delight, the adventuring, the, hey, honey, let's go, you know, explore that new restaurant tonight, plus getting naked some of the time. And you're probably aware of the sad research findings, which is that 30 to 40% of long-term couples, and I'm defining that as together more than a, a few years, more than two or three years. I'm not limiting the phrase long-term couples to couples who've been together for decades. So 30 to 40% of long-term couples are in what's clinically defined as a sexless marriage, which means they make love six or fewer times a year. In that 30 to 40%, probably about 20% or more, haven't made love in months or many years. So this is what happens when we don't attend to the sensuality side of our relationship, when we don't make the erotic important. Now, before we dive into the uh, sexual erotic side more fully, I want to contextualize this and say, I use the word sensuality very deliberately because I'm not just talking about sexuality. I am talking about holding hands, about stroking your partner's hair when you're having a conversation or to soothe them if they're distressed. I'm talking about giving each other a foot rub or a shoulder rub while you watch a movie, just to exchange touch pleasure in a kind, they're non-sexual if we're delineating, I don't think we should, way. And then of course, there's the sexual side, but a lot of couples I work with are in a sexless relationship. They're looking to see if they can regain a level of sensuality and sexuality in their life. And I rarely start them with any sex exercises, especially if they haven't made love, as you well know, for six, seven, eight, ten years. I don't say, well, well, we'll go have sex tonight and then we'll talk about it. On a very rare occasion, I might for a specific set of circumstances, but more normally, I'll have them define for themselves what kind of touch or contact they are comfortable with. Sexless couples generally fall into two groups. One also doesn't cuddle or hug or hold hands, and the other has a lot of physical kind of puppy dog affection, lovely affection, cuddling, hugging, you know, snuggling, but they aren't sexual. So I start where they are and help them learn to bring sensuality in, starting where they're comfortable, and then, as I say, I want to move you well out of your comfort zone bit by bit, but within your safety zone. So for some of them having, you know, if they're a hetero couple, vaginal intercourse may be so far down the road that we may eventually get to naked cuddling, naked stroking, even bringing each other to orgasm with a sex toy or our fingers in a stepwise manner. Now, just briefly for the other uh, half or 60% of couples who do have a sexual life of some ilk at this time, maybe once a month, maybe once a day. Then we look at the quality, um, uh, fantasy, taboo, what I call dark sexual energy, which I think is a very positive phrase, which is, you know, what are your, your raw, rough, crazy fantasies that you're afraid to acknowledge or maybe afraid to talk to your partner about? I'm in no way implying we should act out some of our fantasies. Some of them are best as a charge in our head 
for masturbation or for sometimes partner activity or just telling each other and whispering our erotic taboo fantasy to each other as a turn on. But what I'm saying is I want to assist couples as you do in your work to open up to various aspects of their sensual being from the most tender and loving and sweet where we might make love and weep with the emotional beauty of that connection to our most raw, crazy, hanging off the rafter sex. And it's fine if your raw, crazy, hanging off the rafter sex is you do one position other than missionary now and then. I'm not being facetious. We each define what's wild for us. So in your experience of the couples who you deal with, um, is there always a case of one partner wanting it more than the other? Or can it sometimes be a mutual thing, this disconnection of sensuality mm. and sexuality? I would say generally there's one partner who wishes there was sexuality still and yet may have resigned themselves or in a loving way chosen to say, I love my partner. We're so good in so many ways. They don't want to be sexual. I do, <clears throat> but I'm willing to accept this, um, this because there's so much other to our relationship because sex isn't everything. But very rarely I'll run into a couple where they both state that they're very content being sexless. Now, in my career so far, I've met two couples only who, for whom that was actually true, where they were very happily mutually sexless, didn't masturbate, didn't have a sexual life, and were very happy. They don't have a problem. I don't try to change them. But that's two couples out of thousands and thousands. Then there's hundreds and hundreds or thousands of couples who say they're okay with it. And when we do a little bit more deeper questioning and opening up their, their truth, we don't want to hurt our partner. We've often argued about this in days gone by a lot till we just started avoiding the whole topic. It was too painful. One of us felt like a failure because we weren't feeling sexual and didn't come forward to connect sexually. The other one felt rejected and sad and like they were badgering their, their mate. And a lot of beautiful loving couples just gradually stop ever talking about it. So I would say overall, almost every couple, at least one of them, and if we can move through some of the blocks and the stories and maybe the trauma and the fear and the cultural upbringing and all the stuff that you so well know affects our sexuality and our sexual expression. Usually I can find in there, even for the very reluctant partner that says, I'd be happy to never have any sex of any kind ever again, I'm good, that there is a desire, there is a longing, but there's a belief I can't enjoy that or it won't happen for me. And if so, we would start there with maybe some very gentle self-exploration in their mind and their heart about what sexuality might mean for them well before we might get to self-exploration with um, masturbation or sexual aids or toys and perhaps well before we have them uh, be in any dialogue verbally or in the heart or in in the bed with their partner the take-home message i hope there is don't give up hope you are normal if you rarely or ever make love you are normal if you have very little apparent sexual desire or horniness um, and that these aren't diagnostically wrong, bad, or weird. What they are is interesting, you know, interesting. And because our sexuality, our eroticism, the, you know, the pleasure of, of you know, uh, stroking our, our pet for those of us who like dogs or cats, tremendous research to show how calming that is. Many of us like to hug a friend or we like it when we get a head massage, when we're getting our hair cut and the, 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 the uh, stylist is giving us a head massage over the sink. We are born to enjoy touch. 
we only learn to avoid touch. So I'm always very skeptical when someone says, I've never liked being touched because unless they're on a neurodiverse spectrum, pretty far along it, every human baby and child and toddler enjoyed touch unless they learned it was unpleasant, scary, silly, or wrong in some way. I've been on both sides in the relationship where I've been the one wanting more and I've been the one avoiding it. So I've, 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 I've kind of lived both sides. And I think when I was in a relationship when I was trying to avoid it, I could felt I felt that which I think something that a lot of women can identify with, especially women, is that if someone tries to give you a massage or a foot rub or whatever, you 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 can't really enjoy it because you're thinking they're just doing it because they want sex. And I think it's really yeah. good to actually stop the penetration, like you were saying about how to actually enjoy all of those things and know that penetration is not on the menu because we we you know sex is defined by penetration, unfortunately, and that's how it is for most for most couples and. Um, I think it's very, especially for women who've just had a baby, let's say, this trauma, you know, of the vagina, they just don't really feel ready, perhaps. And then and then the, the, the man kind of can feel rejection. But I think it's really positive to actually just focus on those other things like the massage, the touch, the neck. I mean, the neck is such a, an erogenous place, even more than yeah. the nape. It's just amazing and the head and all of that and just very, just connecting on those levels. And let's give a tip right now for couples listening that, that are saying, well, maybe I'd be ready to engage in some more touch. But what you've just said, Venus, is just right dead on that I work with so many couples where, where uh, when I used to have them in the room and work with them one on one. Now I do it through my online programs uh, and I would question them and let's say heterosexual couple. And let's say I was asking, do you hug? And so often the female partner would say, no, I don't hug because I'm afraid if we hug he'll want to have sex. I'm afraid if we hug, he'll get a hard on. And the fellow's like, well, I might get a hard on because I'm um, attracted to you and I love you, babe, but I love hugging. And so often the man has said, you're avoiding hugging me because you're afraid I'll want to have sex. And all I need to do is give them sometimes something as simple as a green light, yellow light, red light. They figure out what's green light touch. So for the woman in this scenario, uh, you can hug me anytime. You can stroke my hair anytime. Uh, you can kiss me goodnight most of the time, but that's yellow. So green light is hug anytime, approach anytime. You'll always be welcome. Yellow light might be cut, kissing with tongue. Some of the times I'll want it. Some of the times I won't. So maybe just check. And for a while, for a couple a green a red light might be, I don't want you to touch my breasts or my butt or my vulva area at this time. And that's actually very liberating because it allows the couple to know, it allows him to know in this scenario where we're using as an example, that I can come up behind you and give you a big hug around your waist in the kitchen and it's welcome. And that's a green light activity. And he understands, I won't then slide my hand up to your breast, which in the old days he used to enjoy and was very welcome. But at this phase in our relationship, that feels a bit tricky and we're not there yet. And then they can start exploring the touch that I'm calling green light. Go ahead, anytime. It's such a simple exercise and everybody listening can have that conversation with their sweetheart. Yeah, amazing. It's a great idea with the traffic light system. So what mm -hmm. is conscious climax? That's, that's something that really jumped out in your book when, before I bought it, actually. That really jumped out for me. I love the word conscious. I have a group here in Barcelona called Conscious Connections. So I'm really, uh, I, it's, nice. it's a kind of spirituality group. I'm trying to find my Mars there, but I created it to, to, for, well, for a bigger, never <laughs> bigger know. community. Um, yes, well, I, I haven't yet had the pleasure of visiting Spain, Greece and Italy. Yes, Spain's on my list. So maybe one day I'll be able to attend your group and I'll scope out a Mars. <laughs> um, conscious climax. 
Yes, so interesting. I want everybody listening to self-diagnose what I'm about to talk about. And, and here it is. When you are having sex with your partner and you reach orgasm, neither Venus or I are assuming you do, male or female, gay, straight. So we're not assuming it's part of the deal. Let's just say that as you know, skilled sexual educators here. But if you do reach climax, uh, typical climax orgasm, female or male body, while making love with your partner, while engaged in sex with your partner, whether that's penetration at that point or mouths or fingers or toys or whatever it is, where is your mind leading up to the few seconds before you come and while you're climaxing? Are you consciously there in the moment, fully experiencing these waves of pleasure, fully experiencing the touch, even gasp, opening your eyes if you are making love face to face, and looking into your partner's eyes at the point of climax. Now we've probably excluded 95% of people listening, even those that said, yeah, I'm fairly present. I'm pretty much focused on what's happening in the body and the touch. Those ones I almost guarantee don't open their eyes and look in each other's eyes. Quick caveat, I'm not suggesting we do this all the time. I'm suggesting it's a very interesting thing to think about and to explore. The majority of couples, according to research and research, you know, in any of these fields, we get certain people that respond and we get a glimpse into a cohort of people's answers. It doesn't necessarily represent everyone by any means, but it is fairly apparent that the majority of us utilize a fantasy to help us come. So we're making love with John or Jane and we're with John or Jane, and yet we might be thinking about someone else or our go-to fantasy that we often use when we masturbate or certain things that turn us on and help us get there quote unquote helps us achieve the peak of the climax orgasm and be you know sort of over the peak into the orgasmic spasms themselves so think about that there's nothing wrong with it it's not immoral or bad or cheating or anything like that at least in my view but what it is is like being at a fantastic beautiful music concert and remembering another concert at the same time and, and humming that tune quietly in your head at the same time. We're not having the full experience of the sensorium and of the connection and of being immersed in what's actually happening. Now, to be really clear, I'm not telling everybody stop fantasizing to help you come. I'm not suggesting you don't utilize various beautiful erotic mind and body tricks to enhance your pleasure, fine. But what would it be to explore conscious orgasm where I'm as present and mindful as I'm able to be with this touch, with how the flick of the tongue feels on my clitoris, the tip of my penis, etc. Really being here now, breathing in the scent of the musk or our body uh, mingling, feeling the sheets. Um, and this isn't, you know, this isn't some esoteric woohoo. This is a full experience and people have had it, maybe not in sex, hopefully in sex on occasion, but where you're really, really deeply immersed in the concert, in the film, in the conversation, in the, you know, what do they call it? Michelin starred restaurant meal. If we were all sent to a Michelin starred restaurant tomorrow night, how many of us would stop and really roll that flavor on our tongue and have a spirited conversation trying to figure out what that flavor was, that spice, that nuance I sort of recognize, but I can't quite place it. Or would we go, oh, wow, this is really good. And then talk about other stuff. Again, not saying that's bad, but if you're going to pay bajillions of dollars for a Michelin starred meal or a beautiful uh, shepherd's pie your grandmother made, which is your favorite thing, what about experiencing it?
So here's a starter kit for conscious orgasm. Now and then start with, you don't have to open your eyes. That's like a, a rock star level because opening eyes often puts people off their, their, their game and they're unable to reach orgasm then and they feel rather frustrated or disappointed. But for now, what if, if you tend to, the way a lot of lovers do, not everybody, go to an image or a hot idea or a hot fantasy to help you achieve climax orgasm. What if you, one time in five, didn't do that. And instead you brought your mind into a mindfulness practice. You really focused on body sensation, touch on touch, maybe your hand on their back or their buttock and the touch of your palm of, on their muscles. And even just played with it for a moment or two to experience being conscious in the lovemaking. Then if it's you know kind of throwing you off your game, which it probably will in the beginning, because it's a new way of working with our body and mind sensations during sexuality. This applies to masturbation as well um, as partner sex. But then explore, because here's the thing, Cheryl, why would I explore that? Because when you really taste the chocolate we talked about earlier, when you really taste that meal, when you really sit back and really experience that concert, it's richer, it's more alive, it's more sensorially electric. Wouldn't you want that in your lovemaking and in your orgasm experience, at least now and then, to have a more full experience? Again, a reminder, this isn't uh, beginner stuff. Um, anyone can try it, but don't be discouraged if you attempt to be a little more conscious when you reach or are reaching orgasm and it actually stops the process and you kind of missed your sweet spot and aren't able to, to come. That's all right. You're not broken. It's just that you're so used to doing it a certain way, many of us lovers, and reaching our orgasm in a certain way that when we change it, it, it it's a little, um, it's a change but it's well worth practicing because then you can have a type of orgasm that is much more physically satisfying, joyful and pleasurable, but also more emotionally connected in a way that can be very powerful and very special and also a really nice way to spice up or enhance or enliven a long-term sexual relationship with someone you love, but where it's got very predictable and rather dull. For me, I must say, I feel very fortunate because I've been living conscious orgasms then for most of my life because I um the first guy I ever had sex with I was so in love with and he was like he exceeded I, he was the best looking guy in uni or, or I thought you know at the time it's very toxic but the sex was explosive and um I was a bit afraid of penetration like many women are at the first just because not really yeah. understanding how much space is inside your body with a vagina you know it was like a whole mystery it's like the, the secret garden but um, the second time we had sex, because I was kind of relaxed, the first time was obviously a bit tense, and it was over so fast because it just took it took about 30 seconds. But the second time I wasn't anticipating any pain because the first time didn't hurt. And then, so I just had these orgasms like from penetration over and over. And I realized now that it was, I'm very sensitive on the A spot, the AFE zone, um, anterior fornix um, erogenous zone. And it puts me into kind of very mindful, present, surrender state. And it's the same with, it depends, not all penises, but most penises will reach it. And it makes me cry sometimes. I'm just so into it. Um, however, when I stimulate my clitoris, it's a very different experience. I definitely need fantasy for that. So if it's cunnilingus, I kind of have to fantasize because otherwise it's going to be there. They're going to be there for an hour. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but, but with penetration, it's a, it's a real like, div blessing of the divine masculine. It's really present. 
and conscious yes. experience. Beautiful. Mm. I'm glad you shared that because it gives people a sense of what it can feel like in whatever way. As you know, it's a little less common um, for women to climax mm. the way you're describing mm. you do. It's a beautiful, beautiful aspect of sexuality. But what is it like if one is more conscious? You're saying it feels more divine, more connected. It can be this heart melting, a spiritual experience, but mm. also because let's face it, people love pleasure, incredibly powerfully pleasurable to have this more conscious experience, which is um, an aspect to some degree of tantric sexuality practice as well. Yeah, definitely. I need to have some of that. And that's missing in my life right now. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, mm. we can have a lot of joy um, through our masturb masturbation, solo sexual life. But sharing energy with a worthy being is very profound as well, for sure. Which takes me to my next question, which is absolutely perfect now. This is, um, so how can spirituality help you to be a better lover? Mm. It's a little less about me, ideally, um, in general. Of course, we're very self-focused people. That's how we survive, is how we cross the street and don't get run over. But a spiritual aspect to sexuality and to being lover, the way I would uh, define that, there's many beautiful ways to define and answer that question is a sense of the importance of the we, the sense of the, the importance of the emotional and spiritual and transcendent aspect really that can be part of lovemaking, of sharing our bodies in a way that is absolutely hot and amazing and raw and gorgeous and really great fuck, but also has this, this aspect of joining at a sort of a heart level that afterward you don't feel empty afterward you don't feel sad or afterwards you don't have as much of a physiological letdown to the peak of orgasm delight and then down and then the typical you know roll over and fall asleep there's nothing wrong with that by the way or after a lot of men and women say they feel a little bit sad or slightly slightly down after a sexual encounter including with someone they love and feel very safe with and part of that's biophysiological um, hormone shifts and peaks and then a bit of a valley and a bit of almost a, a, a vaguely depressive neurochemistry for a few moments but if you've opened your heart and had also a connection at the heart level of joy and just honoring and feeling delighted that you're pleasing your partner and isn't that magnificent that we're alive in this moment it tends to leave um ideally each partner feeling really connected and really safe and really lovely after as well as beautifully sexually satiated so it's a very short answer to a very large um a large topic of what is it to be spiritual how do we each, each of us define that how do we experience that and if we take it even to a very secular place you may have a lovely definition to add here but it would be being open to more than just this body, this mind, this ego, that body, that mind, this, that ego, but that there is something m more, not necessarily God or, or mind or universe, if any of those concepts work for any of us, beautiful, but just that when we get out of our own way and we realize our story and our experience is simply our story and our experience, we can co-create something that's bigger than both of us while we make a cup of tea or while we make love. Beautiful. So what are you working on at the moment? What projects do you have at the moment? Oh, what a cool question. Um, I'm Right now, we're, we're recording this in October of 2022. Right now, I'm immersed in something I do once a year, which is I'm uh, offering my 
12 week couples immersion program. So for the next three weeks, I'm teaching a lot of free workshops. In fact, I think this comes out on the day I start those free workshops so people can look in the show notes and choose one if they like. I'm teaching four over the next five or six days after this comes out where I teach the passion triangle in more depth and I do some polls and get the audience engaged. It's not on video. I'm the only one on video. People don't necessarily want to show up on video with strangers and talk about their penis (laughs) or their ugly arguments that get verbally abusive. Um, And then I'll be starting with a a group of couples November 4th and I'll take them through a three month immersion program where I teach live every week. And there's a whole curriculum where we really help people work through their own passion triangle, uh, work on most of the topics we've talked about here. But when I've uh, finished this next three weeks of offering the program, enrolling couples and I begin teaching it, then my schedule frees up. I'm teaching, you know, them every week. And then my next steps are I'm going to actually do an audio recording of Buddha's Bedroom, my book. Um, I own the audio rights to it. I had had a smart agent when I negotiated with my publisher and um, I'm going to record it in audio form. So to release the book, because I've had a lot of people say, gosh, you know, do you have an audio book? And then continuing, continuing to help couples as much as I can, mainly through the program. I send out free weekly video love bites. I've got my own podcast, Sex, Love and Elephants. I love like you to give a tremendous amount of valuable information for free to everybody. And then once a year, I get this incredible opportunity to take a group of couples through a deep immersion with me. So it's about helping awaken the planet one couple at a time. That's a beautiful way to, to I used to say, I want to ch- um, change the world one orgasm at a time. So that's kind of <laughs> Perfect. Duo, t- duo tagline. Yeah. That's oh, amazing. Beautiful. A couple of quick questions. What is the book that changed your life? Oh my. Could be several books. I just I just I just want to get yeah. books on my on my reading list because I'm a bookworm. <laughs> you know, really it would be novels when I was young. I was an avid reader as a kid and a lonely kid, a bullied kid. You know, it was me, my pony against the world. So actually some of my earlier books bit grown worthy in terms of great literature were the Enid Blyton books out of England all these young English kids racing around getting into trouble and the Pulliam Thompson pony books um where I'm dating myself here but then a book I really remember from adolescence was it's a book by one of my favorite novelists uh John Irving and it's his book A Prayer for Owen Meany they made it into a movie but the book is really deep and beautiful and to me it's just about meaning in life and sacrifice and loss and who we are when loss defines us. Um, and then in terms of my spiritual path, I don't remember the first sort of um, Western style explanation of Buddhism I ever came across, but I do like the author Sylvia Borstein. She's lovely. She's got a book, Don't Just Do Something, Sit There, which is a lovely yeah, book nice. on meditation and Dharma. And uh, Jack Cornfield's early book, A Path with Heart, would have been an early book where I was first really reading about the Four Noble Truths and the path. And um, uh, Jack and his lovely wife, Trudy, who's a friend of mine, actually wrote the introduction to Buddha's Bedroom 20 odd years later. So that was a nice closing of a circle. Um, Yeah, I just, I read a ton and it's hard for me to put my finger on anything. I usually have a really silly, easy fiction on the go because like you, I work a tremendous amount intellectually and creatively. Sometimes I just want to read something silly that doesn't demand my brains. And concurrently, I'm reading something, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning novels with beautiful prose and profound ideas. And I kind of go back and forth. And then some nonfiction thrown in there, usually about health, mental health, well-being, growth, 
sexuality, relationships, etc. We also have a book review section in this podcast. But I usually have, I'm reading books about personal development, spirituality and sexuality because I read a lot. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of books. <laughs> One of the books that shaped me when I was a teenager was... Um, Judy Bloom, just love Judy Bloom. Oh yes, yeah. Forever. That was such an amazing book. I read that when I was eleven, and those they answered all of the questions you wanted to know that no one would tell you about sex. It was so graphic, and it was being passed around my primary school, my Catholic primary school. What a scandal! It was contraband. Yes, and the other one. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Brought back a a really funny memory. Uh, One of my best friends would always have sleepovers. That her dad had. He was a bit of a hoarder. He had tons of paperback books in his basement, like staggering big piles of them. And we found Erica Jong's Fear of Flying, which has this classic scene in called the zipless fuck, which is her terms, a great term, for the, the completely impossible will never happen sexual experience where you meet the stranger on the airplane and like you get together and there's no zippers, right? And there's nothing in the way and there's no farts and there's no nothing real. It's just perfect and perfection and, and her great search for this. I don't think I thought about that book till you mentioned Judy Bloom. So yeah, exactly. And I'm like, what is happening as I'm reading this book? Of course, being turned on and curious and learning what might be possible with some zippers and farts though in your life. <laughs> so what is the quote or affirmation that you live by? Mm. I would say happiness is an inside job. Okay, so you said that, said that quite a lot earlier in our interview. Great, great quote. And mm. how can people find you? Uh, probably the easiest way is website, just my name, drshelfraser.com. The web, uh, uh, the podcast is Sex, Love, and Elephants. That's an easy Google because it's a weird phrase. Mm-hmm. You'll definitely find your way. Elephants refers to all the Buddhist stuff I also uh, teach. And um, if people are interested in getting weekly tips uh, through the website, they can sign up for what I call my Love Bite list. And that's every Tuesday in North America. I send out, um, it's either about a five, six minute video where I uh, cover a topic, sexless marriage, you know, toxic, toxic arguing, are we doomed if we fight all the time, whatever it is, and or uh, a podcast episode covering a couple's tips. So science-based tips and techniques for people to get that um, reminder weekly. My relationship matters and much like a garden, if I don't tend to it, it's gonna have more weeds than flowers and fruit and vegetables. Excellent. So Dr. Cheryl Fraser, thank you so much for this incredible interview. It's been, it's been an absolute delight. So nice to meet you. Thanks for all the work you do for the world, for the planet, and I look forward to meeting you again. Thanks a lot. The book I'm reading now is Make Money While You Sleep, How to Turn Your Knowledge into Online Courses That Make You Money 24 Hours a Day by Lucy Griffiths. And it says on the back, on the blurb, what if you could earn money doing what you love? What if you could live more and work less? What if you could make money while you sleep? You can. Yes, I love the idea of making money while I sleep. And I've only just started this book, actually, and I bought it this summer when I was in the UK and I was in Waterstones, which I probably told you about before. And I was surrounded by so many books in English, which was like paradise for me. And this title really, really um, jumped out um, for me. It really attracted me because I have been already in the process of setting up more passive income revenue streams. And it just definitely spoke to me. 
for now, up until now, I've been really focused on affiliate marketing and some donations with a website called buymeacoffee.com slash Venus O'Hara, which is amazing. And I've been getting donations from time to time from my lovely followers and and also affiliate marketing. So um, when people um, click on certain links on my website, I get a commission with um, some sex toy brands, which is amazing, and sex toy shops as well. And I also have a members area on my website, venusohara.org, which is where I showcase all of my erotic photos from my very first photo shoot. It's been on there for years. And the most ex- the most exciting, or not exciting, but the most intriguing thing about that is that I haven't done erotic photos for a long time now. It's, it's about maybe five years and I haven't updated the, <laughs> this website for a long time, but the less or the kind of more clothed work I do and less erotic modeling I've done is actually, it's actually become more successful as a result of that, because I think it's, um, it's more mysterious than what my erotic photos might be. So that's an incredible way to, for me to make money while I sleep. And for me, it was always about um, an artistic expression of my body. I was always my own how would I say, art director, which was, um, I found the whole experience to be a lot of fun. I loved kind of playing with myself, not how that sounds a bit bad actually, but um, using my body as an art form. And I just loved that process a lot. So yes, I've been making money with, um, with my photos, with my articles and with donations as I sleep. And it's a wonderful thing, but I do want to take it to the next level um, and create courses because I've been giving workshops here in Barcelona in Soho House and in some other private members clubs. And it's really been helping me with my um, public speaking skills and also just my, how I share knowledge, because I'm actually also a um, qualified teacher. When I first came to Spain, I became a TEFL teacher, English for foreigners. And um, just that experience, actually, even though I wasn't into teaching English to foreigners, but the experience of you know, actually sharing knowledge and teaching people and making things clear is something I'm actually quite good at. So I want to actually, you know, convert my my workshop, the, the content of the workshops that I've been giving into online courses so I can actually share that knowledge then with a bigger audience and um, and also make money while I sleep. So I've had these ideas brewing in my mind for a long time about which courses to create and how to create them. But um, I, I've i been kind of procrastinating. I've been focusing on other things really first. But hopefully now when I read this book, it's going to um, inspire me a little bit more because there are some things I need to get done first before that. But it's definitely something I would like to explore because I do make passive income, but I would like to really increase um, the the passive income that I am generating at the moment because that is true freedom, really. Cause someone asked me yesterday, why don't I set up an erotic shop in Barcelona? And I was thinking, why would I want to do that? I mean, it's so much more fun to actually um, just not have any stock and make money while I sleep with um, affiliate marketing. I mean, having stock and physical products and stuff just seems like a big headache. And also someone I, I interviewed a few months ago about business and erotica was telling me about just being, you know, a CEO of a company is just a lot of, you know, a lot of hours, a lot of just headaches, and you can never really completely disconnect. And I feel like I'm not completely disconnecting as a freelancer, but I think life is for living. It's not just for working all the time. And I think um, I'm really interested in 
you know, improving my lifestyle, which is why I made me this, this podcast as well, because not my life is not just about reviewing sex toys and designing sex toys. I actually do have an orgasmic lifestyle where I, you know, I value I'm not having an alarm, being able to go to the gym every couple of days and being in charge of my time, which is one of the most important things for me. Time is our most valuable asset and it's nice to not have someone else to not, not, not having to report to someone on your time. I think that's that for me is absolutely priceless. But to actually get to a point where you are covering all of your expenses and more with passive income is just so exciting. It's such an ex- exciting prospect because it really does free you up then in terms of your time and just um, you know your financial life really. And that's something I would really love to do because right now I do have projects for companies. Whereas if I had, if I lived solely on my passive income revenues, it would just be for me and I could just decide, okay, I'm going to do another course now or not. And I'd be more, much more independent. So that's the goal with this because I think um, I'm now I'm starting to, starting to think very seriously about time and how I'm using my time and how I want to use my time in the future and how to be smart with it, but also be in a position where I can take my time and just enjoy life because that's why we are here. We don't just want to be working, working, working and then not have balance or not have experiences because that's what it's all about, really. It's not so much about possessions. Well, not for me anyway, but I would love to have that freedom of, you know, um, actually not worrying too much about money and not worrying about when the next projects are coming to be more in control of my own things and also just to travel more that's something I definitely crave and also because I have friends in different countries my family's in the UK I would like to be more connected to the people I know and love in different places and also to, to discover new places as well I think that's maybe quite a cliche most people do say they want to travel but when you travel you, your perspective completely it changes and I think you use time in a much more clever way. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, I went to Germany for the biggest sex toy fair in the world, the biggest B2B um, fair in the world for sex toys. And I just went on a Tuesday morning and came back Wednesday night. And it's incredible what you can do when you step out of your routine and you go somewhere else and all, all, all the ways you can use time in a much more clever way, let's say. Um, rather than just being in the same place every day doing the same things with the same people so yeah I want to be I want to yeah I want to make money while I sleep so I'm hoping this book is a good one but it's um, very clearly explained there's lots of um, it's very clear on the the methodology but also there is some input from the author Lucy Griffith on her own experiences as well and what's really really um I really like about the book so far is she's someone who really didn't believe in her capability to make money while she sleeps because when you think about that it can seem like a crazy dream that it's not going to be possible for you but it definitely has been possible for other people so there's no reason why it can't be possible for you and also it's making me think about you know I guess this um the world of personal development and coaching etc and courses is really really saturated you have to really think about who you're listening to and what type of courses to buy because I I know I can see especially here in Barcelona that there is a there's so many coaches and I really think 
that it's important to to acquire knowledge or seek knowledge from people who really know what they are talking about. And that might sound very obvious, but I'm I'm more interested in people who are experts in something and sharing their knowledge. I mean, someone who's who needs coaching themselves is not going to be able to teach me much, I think. But yeah, that's another topic entirely, the world of, you know, the BS in this world of online courses. But it's really important to be able to actually, um, you know, produce something that's, that is going to be of value and also to market it on the right platform so that it finds the right people. So it's all win-win, an exchange of knowledge for an exchange of money and making money while you sleep. So that's it, Lucy Griffiths, make money while you sleep. How to turn your knowledge into online courses that make you money 24 hours a day. And as soon as I make a course, I will definitely let you know. Now it's time to slow things down as we prepare for this episode's guided affirmations meditation. It's probably not a good idea to listen to this while driving or operating machinery. Instead, take a break from whatever you're doing, get comfortable, take a deep breath and enjoy.
Did you know that you can use your sexual energy to manifest the life of your dreams? It's called sex magic. I've been practicing sex magic for almost five years and it's changed my life. If you're interested in one-to-one magic mentoring with me, visit my website venusohara.org to find out more. To find out more about me and my orgasmic lifestyle, visit venusohara.org or follow me on Instagram at instagram.com slash venusohara. Make sure to search for the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. Have an orgasmic week and make sure every day is a climax.